0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome this evening to Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janine Moloff. I'm the Justice Correspondent, and I'm filling in um, our executive producer, Brooke Hines, is still on a bit of hiatus, but she did prepare a report for us this week. So this week, we're going to be talking about an assortment of topics. We're going to be talking about police brutality and the Supreme Court decision that literally gave police a license to kill. And not just a license to kill, but a license to kill on a wholesale level. We're also going to be talking about what is necessary for not just police reform, but justice reform and why Congress can't seem to get it together. But before we do all that, Brooke has a piece, and what she has done is she has, basically created an overview of important news stories this week. Uh, It includes the Sussman indictment dealing with the Russian gate story, as well as a news scoop that there was a warning about uh, coronavirus like COVID back in 2015. And we know this because the Obama administration when they were leaving office, they worked hard to tell the Trump administration, you're going to have to deal with this, but Trump and his people just predictably disregarded it. Uh, She's also gonna be talking about how some, there's a roundtable discussion about how some doctors are treating COVID as a clotting disease. So we're gonna move on to Brooke's report, and then when she's done, we're gonna move in with the justice report. With that, uh, here is Brooke's story.
1: Hello and welcome to The Lefty Lounge We're PNN Progressive News Network Uh, product? Hmm. Associated entity? Uh, I don't know. You help me out with that. We are well we're at the lefty lounge. This is where uh think of this as the um the uh where you sit before you get your table. Uh and you can order a drink. And maybe they'll forget to charge you. Uh the lefty lounge. We're we're laid back here. Tonight. I've got I've got COVID content and I didn't think I would have COVID content this week. I didn't want to do COVID content this week. I wanted to do something else, but then some really important stories popped up and they're important to the discourse in general and I think they'd be uh, of interest to listeners. So I will be sharing those with you. That's not to say that so much didn't happen this week and I mean just to mention a few of the important stories that you should be reading this week. We found out that Special Prosecutor John Durham has issued a second indictment in his Russiagate investigations. Of course, the first one went to Kevin Clinesmith, uh, for doctoring an email. Uh, so the, that's Number one, lying to the FBI. This second indictment is also for lying. And this one went to a uh, lawyer for the Clinton campaign uh, over at Perkins Coie. And, uh, you know, uh, the whole Perkins Coie team that was doing the DNC and the Clinton campaign stuff, all the electoral business, broke off and has started their own law firm. And you might view that as a defensive measure to get the troublemakers away from the rest of Perkins Coie, maybe. Who knows? But I find it curious and all the time that I've been following Mark Elias on Twitter that all of a sudden he's doing a lot of promotion of his electoral Work and letting people know that uh, all he's working on is helping people to vote. It's all election protection, voter protection, all of that sort of thing. Over and over again. If you follow him, you will see many, many tweets every single day about how they are out there protecting, protecting, protecting the voter. And that comes at the same time as uh, another Perkins Coie lawyer who worked on the same team as Mark Elias, and, is, uh, and Mark Elias is also mentioned, not by name, but he's mentioned in the indictment for Michael Sussman. And so it's it's indictment number two, and this uh, this was issued nine sixteen. So it's been about a week, week and a half. Um, This is a 27-page indictment for lying to the FBI. As I understand it, what happened was Sussman, who had a relationship with the FBI, that's why he was valuable to the team at Perkins Coie, he, Sussman, uh, brought this bot Information. this information that was bought through Fusion GPS, which was contracted through uh, Perkins Coie. Uh, they essentially created a bunch of fake stories that they could take over to the FBI and the DOJ and then trot out in the media all at the same time, like in, in campaign fashion, so that... The campaign can say, look, the FBI and the DOJ are looking at all this stuff that is going on with with Trump. And, of course, this, this is the Alpha Bank allegations. And it was all false. It was all fake, fake and false. And it was also information that they were paying to have created. And so here's this indictment this week. Uh, and, of course, you're not going to hear about this on uh, regular, like, TV news or even, like, the 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 big left-leaning YouTube shows like The Young Turks, because this runs so counter to the narrative about Donald Trump being a Russian asset. In a 27-page indictment, you can read all of the allegations of how everything took place with Michael Sussman, Perkins Coie, all of this Alpha Bank situation. Now, like I said, this is the second indictment to come down the pike uh, and a lot of people are pointing to the fact that this is 27 pages long and that most indictments for lying to the FBI are about five to seven pages. And so the theory is, is that uh, what's going on in this 27 page indictment is they're laying out the the narrative. They want people to read the narrative. They want uh, to see they want you to be able to see who all the players are. And some people are saying that this indictment lays out who might be next to get an indictment. And so you've got all of these en- entities Uh, referred to in here as originator number one and campaign lawyer number one and researcher number two, uh, so on and so forth. These obscured names also relate to the names of businesses, but uh, the the ones that are like researcher are are people. And you can pretty much go down and fill in the blanks who they're talking about, if you're at all familiar with the uh, Russiagate story. So I'm going to put a link to the indictment down in the show notes and uh, uh, just have a look at it. It's it's pretty amazing. And appreciate for a moment that we don't want a Republican to just open up a fake investigation of the next person running, the, the next Democrat running for President. So we don't want this to be repeated. This is why this is important. This isn't a red team blue team thing. This is an oh my god, Watergate level uh, levels of corruption, and we need to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Because essentially, what happened was the Clinton campaign is alleged to have uh, used the DOJ and the FBI as uh, as weapons against the Trump campaign and then they added the extra layer of the media so that they had this this what I've heard people refer to as the virtuous circle you know so that there's uh, you, you've got the allegation you feed the allegation to the law enforcement agency and then you get to report on the fact that the law enforcement agency is looking at this allegation and so the media picks that up, and then the candidate herself tweeted it out. So, so you're going to want to read this, and you're going to want to look at what is going on on the sidelines, because in the discovery we found out that through emails, that people on the team at Fusion GPS and the researchers, they were all saying that look, we don't have any evidence that. Uh, the Trump campaign was doing anything untoward with this Alpha Bank situation. We don't have anything to report. And what they were told in response was was that – being able to provide evidence of anything that shows an attempt to behave badly in relation to this uh, would mean the VIPs would be happy. And this is uh, Sussman saying uh, that high-profile clients in the Hillary Clinton campaign would like those researchers that are being paid by the Clinton campaign and Fusion GPS and so, on and so forth, they want them to produce something. I don't care if it's, if it's true or not. The v- make the VIPs happy. That was the message. What Sussman did that is against the law is that he told the FBI that he was not doing work on behalf of any client, that he was uh, just um, a good Samaritan here. And, uh, you know, you've got to imagine that people at the FBI kind of hear that sort of thing all the time, uh, even, even from people that they might have been roommates in college with or especially from those people. You've got to think that there's lots of winking and nudging going on here. And it might be the case that it is people in the FBI who are providing information to Durham on this. I would imagine that Durham would have the most leverage over people at the FBI and other people who are under investigation. Include uh, Lisa Page, uh, Peter Strzok. You know the two who are having the affair. Uh, James Baker uh, could be cooperating. That this is this is where. You know the, the the first indictment for Cleving, Kevin Kevin Smith was uh, lying to get a FISA warrant on Carter Page, and so you've got all these people within the FBI who are behaving very badly, and uh, I don't think that you need Mark Elias or Glenn Simpson or anyone at CrowdStrike or any of these other uh, players. You don't need them to be. Uh, Singing like a canary There are plenty of people within law enforcement Who have a lot of reason To protect themselves Already Now Matt Taibbi points something out That I think is really interesting The talking heads on television are saying That the case against Sussman is weak Because his alleged crime Was lying to the FBI When the FBI knew full well He was working with the Clinton campaign And Taibbi points out And this is just so perfect for the media right now. He, he points out that this doesn't exculpate Sussman. It inculpates the FBI for doing what it did throughout the Russiagate scandal, which is participating in the fiction that sources like Sussman or Christopher Steele were financed by someone other than the Clinton campaign. In the Steele case, Taibbi writes, remember, the FBI went so far as to conceal the Clinton campaign's role from the FISA court at at least th- on at least three occasions. And so Taibbi continues to point out that this is a very, very big deal. And Taibbi's point here is that the only thing keeping Russiagate from being perceived as a Watergate level uh, of corruption is that the media will not report, just will not report on their own guilt in this matter, and, and, and you wouldn't expect them to. Uh, Russiagate was a daisy chain of deception, says Taibbi. The Clinton campaign systemic, systematically planted phony stories about things like the Trump Alpha Bank business, the PP tape, the blackmail, Carter Page's supposed role as a Trump-Russia conduit. The FBI went along with the fiction and all of that, and that's where my own speculation, this is this is where I think Uh, Durham is actually getting traction. I think he's getting traction within the uh, FBI. Uh, Taiby continues. He says, uh, the only thing preventing all of this from being thought of as a scaled-up version of Watergate is the continued refusal of institutional America to own up to the comparison. Dick Nixon's low-rent escapades, like the Canuck letter, or distributing flyers offering free balloons for the kiddies on behalf of Hubert Humphrey in black neighborhoods, or sending masses of pizzas to Ed Muskie's hotel. All this pales in comparison to the massive ongoing campaign of fake news stories and political sabotage planted by the Clinton campaign and figures within the campaign in 2016 and beyond. The fact that the accompanying program of illegal surveillance was affected by lying to obtain FISA authority instead of a third-rate bur- burglary and bug doesn't improve the situation. And I think Taibi's right on here. If the target had been anyone, anyone but Donald Trump, no one would even be trying to deny how corrupt all of this is and, and all of it continues to be. So that's a very important story, and I wanted to make sure that you – Got that on your radar this week. Also this week, there is a shocking and disturbing story from Yahoo News. The CIA, led by Mike Pompeo under Trump, repeatedly and seriously considered extrajudicially, that's hard to say, extrajudicially, kidnapping and even assassinating WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Intelligence officials also lobbied to have other journalists recategorized as information brokers in order to investigate and potentially prosecute them. Now, this includes Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald for their award-winning reporting on the Snowden files. The entire well-reported story is appalling, start to finish. This is from the Freedom of the... Press Foundation, Uh, the Biden Department of Justice must drop its charges against Assange immediately, they write. The case already threatens core press freedoms. And if you're having to redefine reporters as information brokers, like how soon is it before you're recategorizing information brokers as information terrorists or uh, information evildoers? or whatever it is, um, because none of that's real. All of that's fake. Reporters are reporters, uh, and they were doing their job, and it's too bad. If you don't like what what they're reporting, stop doing crooked shit, and they won't report on it. And That's the way that's supposed to work. Uh, We do still... I guess, sort of, kind of, have a First Amendment in the United States. Uh, Good luck finding a platform in order to practice your core freedom there. And uh, let's hope that the Biden administration does the right thing regarding Assange, because these new allegations that have come to light are stunning, now, I want to point out, too, that one of the writers uh, who broke this story, this comes from Yahoo News, and one of the, the writers there is Michael Isakoff, who I have written on before for being a water carrier for the intelligence, the national security intelligence matrix here in this country. And so I, I'm looking at this story, and I'm trying to balance that out, you know, because we know that Isakoff is – pretty much just been a conduit for intelligence PR for a while so why, why switch horses what's going on here there's a there's got to be a deeper story but uh, I'll leave a link for that story in the show notes and I'll be right back with some COVID news <laughs> Right, I have been covering the COVID origins angle since the beginning of all of this, since all this started, uh, 2020, from like January 2020. Uh, I became interested in that because I have a history in disarmament issues, and that's why I brought Sam Husseini on the show to talk about the issues pertaining to bioweaponry and why we were using labs in Wuhan for research. And, you know, just just what does all of this mean when you add it all up? Um, And this week, a story reemerged on Twitter that I thought was really interesting. So uh, this story from November 12, 2015, is entitled engineered bat virus stirs debate over risky research lab-made coronavirus related to SARS can infect human cells it says uh this is in nature by the way this isn't like uh you know discover magazine or or anything like that this is nature this is a journal Nature says uh, an experiment that created a hybrid version of a bat coronavirus, one related to the virus that causes SARS, has triggered renewed debate over whether engineering lab variants of viruses with possible pandemic potential is worth the risks. And this reporting in Nature was reporting on another article in Nature Medicine on November 9. uh, where Scientists investigated a virus called SHC014, which is found in horseshoe bats in China. The researchers created a chimeric virus made up of a surface Mm -hmm. protein and then the backbone of a SARS virus that had been adapted to grow in mice and mimic human disease. That's that ACE2 in, in inhibitor, um, the, the ACE2 pathway. And so, so the next piece is really interesting. Uh, th- just reading through this, it's a short article. And so this is, I find this really interesting. The researchers created a chimeric virus made up of a surface protein and a backbone. Uh, so so the, the surface protein was the thing that was made up, and then they put it on the backbone of a SARS virus. And it was successful in quotation marks, uh, successful for infecting human airway cells. That's the ACE2 receptors. And it says that they were able to prove that the surface protein of SHC014 has the necessary structure to bind to a receptor on the cells and to infect them. That's the... uh, the, uh, furin cleavage site situation with the S protein. Uh, so they were talking about all of this stuff that we've been talking about in the last year and a half. They were talking about it in 2015 and raising red flags on it. It says that uh, although almost all coronaviruses isolated from bats have not been able to bind to the key human receptor, this one uh, is able to do so. And it's not the first one. They were able to do it also in 2013 when researchers reported the ability for the first time in a different coronavirus isolated from the same bat population. And all of this there's citations on all of this. so you can go look up the original research on it. Interesting right here in 2015, uh, they say the findings reinforce suspicions that bat coronaviruses capable of infecting humans directly, rather than going through uh, an, an animal, an intermediate host, like a, like a passage through a pangolin or uh, another animal that you might find at a wet market or whatever it is, uh, you can kind of see the way that the narratives were created around coronavirus in the beginning. You can kind of see in this paper uh, how they created that Public relations uh, material from the very start. We already we were already doing this, and this is why, this is why I was interested in this story from the start. And I don't claim any you know like special expertise other than having been following uh, disarmament issues since the 80s. And of course, when you started in disarmament in the 80s, what you were really worried about, at least initially was uh, nuclear arms, and we wanted to move the money that was creating those nuclear weapons, we wanted to move that over into domestic uh, programs, education, health, you name it. Uh, We were in an arms race where we were trying to outspend Russia, and that was explicitly what they were trying to do. And we found out uh, in the midst of all that that the U.S. was using bogus Intelligence. This is sounding familiar. Using bogus intelligence uh, from uh, about Russia, where Russia had just like put out these like fake uh, cardboard cutouts of nuclear arms lined up on a at an airbase, and we used that information to inform us that we had to ramp up our program and build so much more, 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 more nuclear armaments to fight back against these fake arms that our intelligence services had from satellite photos of, of of Russia. And there's plenty of evidence to show that our intelligence knew it was fake. They knew it was fake. Absolutely. And they were still using it to just get more money into the programs. Then what happens uh, around like 1986, 87, is that uh, they – they figure out that the cost per kill, the cost per kill is so much less with bioweapons that we ought to be putting our energy and expertise into creating uh, more complex and useful and targeted kinds of uh, bioweapons. And that to me is morally repugnant on its face, just on its face. And, and, and part of the reason why you, a normal person wouldn't want, you know, superpowers playing around with, with germ warfare is because they can get loose. And they can get loose without much knowledge of how to fight them, you know, and then you get a pandemic on your hands. Next thing you know, there's, you know, 5 million people dead. And uh, let's see when you get down and you dig all the way down to the bottom of this oh looky there this is who uh, this this is who is behind it all is uh, Peter Dazak at EcoHealth Alliance and Ralph Barrick who was a researcher at UNC Chapel Hill um, and he was a co-author on the study that that was just mentioned now we know from emails that were obtained through freedom of information that Barrick and Dazak uh, colluded with a number of other scientists to uh, place letters of support in journals that, that talked about how this there couldn't possibly be a lab leak. Uh, this is absolutely a natural-born zoonotic virus. Yada yada yada, and uh, and these emails are you know lay bare how all of that was fake and all of that was a fraud, and they uh, intentionally went out. To deceive the public about the origins of COVID, and so when I see this article from 2015, uh, I'm like, uh, I, I retweeted it and I said um, something like, uh, "Whoa, that'd sure suck if that got loose," which is pretty much what happened. And you know, the the the, uh, the funny thing is that for Oh, months and months and months. You would be deplatformed if you talked about the uh, lab leak scenario for the origin of this particular SARS virus that has the curing cleavage site and uh, uses a spike protein, et cetera, et cetera. You would be deplatformed, thrown off of YouTube, thrown off of Twitter, thrown off of Facebook uh, because they didn't want anybody talking about that. Now you have to ask yourself, who are the people who are running the uh, um, censorship on on social media? And we found out this week that it's actual literal vaccine company, Pfizer people that are working with Facebook to determine what kind of speech people can have on on the pandemic that we are all suffering from. And so this is, entity, this pharmaceutical entity that is actually involved at the front end, you know, with with all of the research on the bat viruses on the front end, uh, and may have been responsible for this thing getting out and for almost 5 million people dying, what kind of world do we live in when those are the people that you empower to censor speech on social media, to censor the speech of just regular average people? But that's exactly what we've done. So that's one story, one and a half, you know, if you count the uh, Facebook thing. That was also an article that, that came up this week. I'll put them all in the show notes. Last thing, and this is, uh, this is the uh, extra bonus that you can follow over to uh, Anchor if you're listening on Blog Talk Radio. The last thing, there was a, a, a summit this weekend, Global COVID Summit in San Juan on the under-treatment of, of COVID being the cause of the major cause of deaths. And so I'm going to share uh, pieces of this. This is a, a panel of doctors and scientists convening in a remarkable open forum about effective early treatment and evaluation of our treatment protocols for COVID, you know, on, in toto. Uh, this, is, this is really, really interesting stuff. You've got all the heavy hitters on, on this panel. You have people who are absolutely, when they say they're on the front lines, they are on the front lines. These are the people in ICUs, and these are the people that have the largest family practice uh, centers in, in, in California, and you know, some of our foremost uh, knowledgeable people on covid treatment in the United States. And it's just a fascinating discussion hosted by the Media Startup Roundtable. And the name of the discussion is the undertreatment of, of COVID uh, and, and that undertreatment is cited as the cause for deaths in COVID. And the discussion kicked off with what I thought was really interesting, that uh, the, the notion, the concept that COVID is at base, fundamentally, an inflammatory thrombotic syndrome. And the reason why I find that so interesting is that I was in the hospital for four months in 2003 with an inflammatory thrombotic syndrome. And I've been saying since the beginning of this that long COVID is exactly the same as the, the chronic condition that I suffer from that was kicked off with an inflammatory thrombotic syndrome that it was, it was a post-viral situation. Now I'm not saying that, that I caught COVID back then. What I'm saying is, is that different things can cause inflammatory thrombotic syndromes. And what happens is your endothelial cells just go apeshit, and everything wants to stick to them. When you're in an inflammatory state and it's in a thrombotic inflammatory state, what that means is that your your vascular system is all roughed up. It's like somebody took sandpaper to it, and it's just waiting for stuff to stick to it. And that's how you get thrombosis. That is how you get blood clots. Um, so when I was in the hospital the first time, it was that I'd been complaining for months that I was in pain, that I had a fever, that I was sick, that all of this stuff was happening. The only reason that I got in the hospital the first time was because they found a giant blood clot behind my knee that was climbing up over into my thigh and that's when blood clots are really bad. You don't want them to you don't want them at all, but you definitely don't want them to go up over your knee because that's when they start, you know, traveling. That's that's when they're on their way to your lungs or on their way to your brain or your heart or whatever. And just as a layperson, what I've been saying from the beginning is that we know how to treat this. We know how to treat inflammation. We know how to treat thrombosis. Inflammation is treated with uh, corticosteroids or in, in, in other anti-inflammatories. A lot of things are, have anti-inflammatory action. Uh, foods have anti-inflammatory action, and f- some foods have inflammatory action. There is an actual anti-inflammatory diet that I, that I uh, participate in. Participate in? That's a backwards way of saying it. I I can't eat inflammatory foods. And neither should you if you are suffering from, from COVID because it's an inflammatory system. Now, I want you to hear clip really quick, uh, two doctors, Dr. Robert Malone, who is one of the inventors of MRNA technology, and Dr. Ryan Cole of Mayo Clinic, and uh, just renowned he has been everywhere. Uh, and I want you to hear how they're talking about uh, COVID as a inflammatory thrombotic syndrome. Here we go. First, you're going to hear Dr. Malone.
2: However, in in the fog of war and the need to come up with something as soon as possible, some decisions were made to move things forward very rapidly. They were based on incomplete information. No harm, no foul. People did what they did in good faith and focused on a protein that they thought was fully safe, SPIKE. But now, over a year later, we know that in the virus, this protein is responsible for much of the disease that the virus causes, the pathology in your vascular endothelial cells, the coagulation, and it's unfortunate that this particular protein, in, its, in what appears to be a biologically active form, was used in these vaccines.
1: Okay, the protein he's talking about there is the spike protein, and uh, he says it, but he kind of breathes on on, on his word, and you didn't quite hear it. But he's talking about the the, the spike protein, and basically what he's saying is that it tends to activate your endothelial cells to create this uh, thrombotic environment, you might say. Now, listen to what Ryan Cole has to say. Now, first, you're going to hear the moderator uh, kind of motivate this question. And so he asks,
3: what is the result of that? What does that mean it's happening? This is a thromboembolic disease. What does that mean? COVID is a clotting disease. COVID is a clotting disease. COVID is a clotting disease. This doctor talking right now is
1: Dr. Ryan Cole of uh, Mayo, and uh, there are plenty of other videos where he talks about the endothelial activation and the thrombosis, but I want to get a really good taste of of what he's about, so let's continue.
3: Now when we give a spike protein, to Dr. Malone's point, that is an active biologic um, molecule, we chose the wrong molecule that causes disease. So what do I see under the microscope? You see these COVID skin cases, you know, these weird COVID rashes. What is that? That's clotting in the skin. When I get the autopsy tissues now from my colleagues around the country, these patients that, you know, we have unfortunately doctors that say there's no damage from the vaccines and no deaths from the vaccines. We should use the French legal system when we have a new product that's never been used on humanity in the market. It's guilty until proven innocent. Every time there is damage or disease from that product, we need to assume what it is until we prove it isn't. Now, this is some
1: heavy shit right here. What they're saying, and I, I, I'm going to try to translate this as, as best as possible. This is just you know, this is just what I do. You know, I, I try to take a, a complex jargony ideas and put them uh, into words that, that people can understand. Now, what they're talking about here, uh, when, when he says that, that they, they picked the wrong protein, the S protein is associated with the very first COVID, with the w- with the alpha. And we're on delta and we're headed towards mu and, and others. You know, Zeta is going to be in there somewhere. Uh, so our vaccine works on it, it, it by activating this one protein, And the variants that we are experiencing now and going forward don't need that particular protein to do their thing. And what Dr. Malone is saying is that that protein itself, which is in the vaccine, you know, which is what makes the vaccine go, that that itself activates uh, your endothelial cells into an inflammatory state. Uh, So... this is this is mind-boggling and reality-shattering stuff right here. If you are just to take the part about focusing on the wrong protein, uh, then then it's it, it's still explosive. But what they're actually saying, it sounds to me, and I I, I think to the, the the panel here, is is that, n- number one, we're barking up the wrong tree, and number two, we could very well be causing more damage than we are uh, avoiding with the vac- using the vaccine at this point on, on a variance which it doesn't work on. So what I gather from what Malone is saying in Toto, and we'll get to this over uh, on the other side, is uh, it all started out, the way it was supposed to start out. It all started out with everyone having the right intentions. And, you know, he, he started out there and he said, you know, in the fog of war, we, we lost our way. Well, yeah, that, that tends to happen. So, uh, what the hell? I'm going to go ahead and share the, the very first part of what Dr. Malone says so that, so that you have the uh, bookend to this. So this is how he got to where we were talking about the spike protein and the, uh, being the wrong protein to focus on and how that happened in the fog of war. This is what set, set that up
3: that i think people have and i want to start with you dr malone if that's okay because you are the one of the architects of mrna technology and if i were to ask you dr malone are you against a vaccine for covid i know your answer would be absolutely not but you do have some issues with this particular vaccine why Um, Thanks
2: for that opportunity to make the point that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm a guy who spent the majority of my adult life developing vaccines and trying to get vaccines licensed. For example, the Ebola vaccine that we call the Merck vaccine. This, This is a technology platform that I believe and many believe has enormous promise. And right now, it's in its infancy. The safety of the underlying technology is not yet fully demonstrated. It hasn't been fully characterized, and that will come. That's good news. However, in in the fog of war and the need to come up with something as soon as possible, some decisions were made to move things forward very rapidly. They were based on incomplete information, no harm
1: and he starts to say no harm no foul and you know i i I'm, I'm starting to wonder though as as i uh get deeper and deeper into this, I st- I'm starting to wonder if there hasn't been harm and there hasn't been foul. I mean, I get it. I understand that that uh, it, it, it was the fog of war and everybody was scrambling to, to find this thing that, that worked, but it, it it seems like what they're saying is that the safety profile is, is unproven, that it's not there, and that it's problematic, and that's something that we have to all... Uh, uh, pay attention to. Unfortunately, we have to all pay attention to it because we're not getting complete information from uh, from our uh, CDC and FDA and NIH because they're all funded by pharmaceutical companies and you know social media is uh has Pfizer actually censoring people so I mean it's really hard for people to get information right now that is uh, critical to their good health and um, that's really sad so I'm going to leave this right here for our folks at Blog Talk Radio and then continue over on at Anchor and uh, for everyone at BTR thank you so much and hopefully you'll follow me over and um, either way whichever platform you're on we will be right back
0: Okay, so that was Brooke's report for this week. Now we're going to move on to the justice report. So, as we know, police brutality is alive and well in the United States. And apparently removing Trump for off, from office didn't bring about the police accountability we were hope, hoping for. Just this past week, and this was a story that I saw on uh, Dr. Rashad Ritchie's Indisputable program, Uh, there's a story about a township near where I live called Woodson Terrace, and there was video of white police officers using a canine attack dog on a black man who had been accused of trespassing and allegedly breaking into a local business. Now, the video was really kind of reminiscent of the old videos in the 50s and 60s where Bull Connor and others were, you know, basically sicking vicious dogs on black people. And, you know, once again, this was so, I saw the video, all right, and it was reminiscent of that, uh, so much so that it did trigger an FBI investigation of the Woodson Terrace Police Department. So we're going to be talking about that. I'm also going to be talking about the original 1989 Supreme Court case known as Graham v. Connor, And this was the Supreme Court case that granted police not only a license to kill and a license to brutalize, but really a wholesale license to kill. And we'll get into that. I'm also going to question a democratically controlled Congress, albeit with slim majorities, and a Democratic president that are both too cowardly to revoke the damage done by the Graham Standard, and it can be suspended. So this Graham Standard, though it disproportionately hurts communities of color because it grants police a license to kill, it hurts us all. It really does set the stage for a police state. So we're going to be talking about that, and then I'm going to end this with a segment I call our political heroes, zeros, and villains for this week. So the Woodson Terrace incident, as I said, I saw this on Dr. Rashad Ritchie's show, Indisputable. And the minute I heard Woodson Terrace, I, my ears perked up because I literally live five miles from Woodson Terrace. Now, if those of you that are listening, if you think this sounds a lot like Ferguson, it does. Because here in Missouri, especially in suburban St. Louis County, Ferguson was not an anomaly. Ferguson was representative of a systemic pattern of systemic racism, systemic police brutality. And whether it's Woodson Terrace, St. Anne, Overland, Ferguson, even more affluent areas of St. Louis County like Chesterfield and Baldwin and St. Charles it still happens. There's a whole bunch of Fergusons here. Make no mistake about it. So apparently what happened was there was a local business owner who has remained unnamed as well as the man that the police uh, arrested. He called the police and he claimed that this black man had trespassed and broken into his business. Now, when the police arrived you know, on that that area, okay, which is really very close to the airport. Black man saw police coming for him, so he walked away to another property, as anybody, any person of color with sense would do. But this guy, I don't know exactly what happened. So, but to quote Dr. Rashad Ritchie, he says, quote, when you call the police, you are calling a gun. And he's right. So the black man, who has yet remained unnamed, kept walking away from the police. The police kept coming after him. They barked commands at him. Uh, These were white police officers. Then they threatened him with an attack dog. And then throughout this encounter, eventually the canine attack dog was released on him. Now, there were passersby who did record the incident. And the film made the local newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, as well as the local NBC affiliate. And let's be honest here. Without this type of video documentation, this story would have never seen the live day. You know, a lot of people complain about the online presence, but if nothing else, the ability of our cell phones to film things as they're happening Yes, it's one of the things that has brought to light the reality of policing here in the United States, the reality that communities of color have always known. And this encounter, yes, is another example of systemic police brutality. It doesn't matter what the politicians tell you. And I'm going to argue, you know, you hear a lot of politicians claiming, well, the issue is we need more training for our police. We need a lot more training You know, We need empathy training And we need uh, multi-cultural uh, training And on and on and on No, that's not the issue Legitimate and decent people Should have learned how to be decent In their childhood The issue isn't training The issue is not a need for more public relations stunts The issue is systemic racism, and subsequent police brutality that leads to what can only be called extrajudicial murders by police. The issue is a culture of silence which protects police thugs. The issue is a clear lack of accountability and transparency. And the final issue is a legal ruling that grants police a wholesale license to kill and an excuse let's talk about it so the Associated Press put out a story and you know once again the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office is investigating this incident that happened in Woodson Terrace okay keep in mind the new uh, top prosecutor Wesley Bell is a black man he campaigned to end this culture of not only police um uh, police brutality, uh, police criminality, but also corruption, not only from police, but corruption in the prosecutor's office itself. The former prosecutor, the Ferguson prosecutor, Mr. McCullough, was thoroughly corrupt. So Wesley Bell came in, and he's trying to change the culture, but it's very difficult. So, again, there was cell phone video, and you saw these white officers, um, they let this police dog repeatedly just maul and bite this black man while he was already down. Okay. The, the police kept trying to say this guy was trying to uh, resist arrest, but they already had him pinned down. How in the, uh, and, the, and the police dog was attacking him. How was he going to resist? I mean, I don't know about you, but if a dog is trying to bite my leg and turn it into a hamburger, of course I'm going to pull away. Any person would. That's not the same as resisting arrest. The local newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, their editorial board did compare this filmed arrest to the pre-civil rights days in Alabama. St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Wesley Bell issued a statement saying that his office, quote, is aware of this video and we will make a thorough review of the incident, end quote. And he wasn't going to comment any more about the case. So let's talk about Woodson-Parris. Terrace. is another Ferguson They're just quieter about it, okay? It's a little community. It's right next to the St. Louis International Airport. Apparently, this past Monday at 7.18 a.m., the police were notified that a man had broken into a business. Now, the police also said in a Facebook post that the man appeared to be on drugs. That was one of the accusations. The police also accused that the man had threatened to kill officers, and had tried to walk away from them into rush hour traffic. Again, it obviously must not have been a credible threat because they already had him pinned down. Officers, the the Facebook post also said the officers tried to arrest the man, but he resisted, and then the cops warned him that if you don't stop resisting, we're going to use a police dog on you. And then they said that when the man continued to resist, Apparently, one of the officers had minor injuries. The dog was deployed. Okay. Now, the cell phone video shows the dog biting the man's foot. The man's yelling out in pain. The cop handling the dog is holding it by a leash but allows this biting to go on for about 30 seconds. Then the officer pulls off the dog, and it looks like the man appears to take a step to run, but he falls down. The dog lunges at him again and he bites this man's leg for another 30 seconds until the officer finally, tells the dog, finally pulls the, the dog off. Then the officers handcuff the man. Uh, then the police department said that, you know, they offered to give this man medical treatment, which he refused, and then later he complained, so they sent him to the hospital, so on and so forth. The police claimed that they thought the man was on methamphetamines, and all of this really pulls together what we're going to be talking about in the Graham case. Now, according to the AP story done by Jim Salter, uh, the mayor of Woodson Terrace refused to respond to any to an email message asking for more information from the AP reporter, and the police didn't respond to any phone messages that Salter sent. Again, Salter is an AP reporter, Associated Press. The same Louis Post Dispatches editorial board um, wrote the following that the use of the dog was quote just like Birmingham's Birmingham's infamous public safety chief Bull Connor did in the 1960s to deter blacks from marching for equal rights, end quote. Okay, so I downloaded the press release uh, that the Woodson Terrace Police Department issued in their Facebook account. And oh lord, it's so stupid. I'm sorry, but it just is. The press release um, it was, press release was written September 20th at 12.03 p.m. And I'm just going to read it, okay? On Monday, 9, 20, 21, at approximately 7 to 18 a.m., our officers responded to a local business for a subject trespassing and refusing to leave. The caller was fearful the subject was going to remain in the building. Okay, well, that's the first paragraph. Now, keep in mind, there is no mention of any proof, just the caller's accusations. Upon the office, this is from the, the press release again. Quote, upon the officer's arrival, the subject left the business and was located by the officers walking towards another business, end quote. So the subject left the area of the trespass complaint, so why were these officers bothering with him? Now, the officers claimed that there was some breaking and entering. Was there evidence? Where was the evidence? no one's provided it to continue with this this Facebook account quote our officers made contact with the subject and the subject immediately started threatening to kill the officers and identified as a sovereign citizen okay the subject continued yelling obscenities and telling the officers he would not comply and he will not obey your contract the subject continued to walk away from the officers and several commands to stop were given by the officers but the subject failed to comply and continued to walk away into rush hour traffic on Woodson Road, end quote. Now, here's the thing, problem with this report so far. This is a black man they're going after, white officers. And, excuse me, and so they're saying that this man's threatening to kill the officers. Again, it's just the officer's word for it. There's no proof that I know of. But then they're saying a black man identified as a sovereign citizen, which doesn't make sense because the sovereign citizen movement is most usually ident- most usually associated with white supremacist groups, not black, not not communities of color. So it looks like these officers not only can't really tell the truth, but they're, they're kind of stupid too, in my opinion. Okay, and, and then. How frightened was this man that he felt the need to run into rush hour traffic? Okay, let's go on with this. So from the Facebook account, quote, The officers had to block traffic to keep the subject from getting struck by vehicles. The officers officers observed the subject was under the influence of a narcotic and advised him he was under arrest. The officers advised the subject to place his hands behind his back, but he refused. And when the officers attempted to place the subject's hands behind his back, the subject resisted and refused to comply, end quote. Okay. They can say that maybe this man looked like he was under the influence of some substance. But there's no there's no way of telling at that point whether it was a narcotic or just alcohol. You don't know. So this this press release is loaded with bias. Let's move on. Quote, the officers attempted to get the subject to cooperate with them, but the subject continued resisting. The subject was then warned several times that if he did not comply, the canine would be released. The subject continued to resist, causing minor injuries to one of the officers. So the canine was released, and the canine gained control of the subject's foot. Why didn't you just say the dog bit the guy? Anyway, let's go on. Quote. The suspect went to the ground, and the canine was pulled off the subject. After the canine was pulled off of the suspect, the officers attempted to place the subject into handcuffs. But due to the subject being under the influence of drugs, he continued to resist, and the officers were unable to restrain the subject. The subject got up and attempted to flee from the officers, and the canine was released again, biting the suspect on his leg. Okay. I want to know, was this black man Superman or what? I know if a dog had bitten me several times in the leg, it would be very difficult for me or anyone else to run away. I'm just saying. Let's go on. Quote, an ambulance responded, but the subject refused medical attention, and he was transported to the Woodson Terrace Police Department. The subject began complaining about his injuries, so the ambulance responded and transported the subject to the hospital. After the subject was arrested, the officers found suspected methamphetamine on the subject, which would explain why the officers were unable to restrain the subject. The subject was released pending application of warrants, end quote. Okay. My question is this. If all this was true, and I don't think it was, but if it was, why was the suspect released then pending application of warrants? why wasn't he held or forced to, you know, provide bail somehow? I mean, to me, it looks like the subject being released pending application of warrants, to me, it looks like the cops suspect they didn't necessarily have a case, and so they let the guy go. But if he was such a danger to officers, why would you release him? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Now, a lot of the things that the cops said in that, that press release is very prescient because with the Graham ruling, an officer just, this is where they got the whole idea that all an officer has to do is say, I feared for my life, somebody threatened my life, or I felt in danger. That's the only excuse they need to use greater levels of violence, including to kill. I'm serious. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We're going to get into that in a little bit. So I'm looking. I, I watched the video, and this man is leaning up against the car. He is unable to fully stand up in these pictures. You see the dog pulling on his leg. His, the part of his leg is in the dog's teeth. Okay. Now, the the actual act, original accusation that the police claimed the man was suspected of breaking into a business. Um, the footage, the filming, the filmed footage from the bystander shows otherwise. There is no evidence that this man attempted to break into anybody's building or business. None. And that that was the original complaint. That and trespass. Well, if it's only based on, on trespass, then, and he was walking away, then they had no reason to bother him then. He left. And as for the drug charges, well, once again, you can see how this spiraled out of control. Once again, I look at this, and if the film footage, if there is no evidence that this man broke into a business, which was the original complaint, and if the secondary complaint was trespassing and he was leaving the area, then the police absolutely had no right to bother him at all. But part of this was what I call a not not a driving while black, not a walking while black. I call this a B as in boy, B W B, breathing while black follow takes the editorial board of the st louis post dispatch uh, a quote from their editorial said quote this incident bears all the hallmarks of cops deciding to issue their personal form of street justice inflicting pain and punishment on the spot instead of waiting for the courts to do their job the post dispatch also quoted a do- a dog expert named michael gould And Mr. Gould specializes in what are called police canine tactics. And he looked at the film and he said, quote, the fact of the matter is it's a human reflex response. You can't have an an 80-pound dog puncturing your skin and be compliant. It's virtually impossible. So to say this man was resisting arrest as the dog was biting him and saying he wouldn't comply, He couldn't comply. Okay? So there's so many problems with this, and you would think, okay, this shouldn't be allowed. The law says you can't do this. Well, maybe, maybe not. Now, we know that the FBI has stepped in to investigate this case. There was a piece written by Katie Cole. And the headline is, FBI Investigates Woodson Terrace Police in Wake of Video of Department Canine Biting a Man. Okay? And the, the FBI, well, here, let's get to this, okay? So first of all, the Woodson Terrace Police Chief is a man named Randy Halstead. And Chief Halstead issued an email saying that his department was, quote, fully cooperating, end quote, with federal investigators and the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office. Okay. Now, it's unclear, according to Katie, until, according to this journalist, what type of information the, the FBI has requested, but the FBI, quote, typically investigates so-called color of law cases, and that's from fbi.gov. Di- and a color of law case is one in which government officials are alleged to have committed constitutional violations. And that could include allegations, I'm just reading from this, allegations of unreasonable or excessive force by police who are required to use police least force necessary to gain a suspect suspect or arrestees compliance. And this, uh, this journalist talked about the most recent color of law case in the news, and that was of detector, Detective Luther Hall. He was an undercover cop and other st. Louis City police officers you know beat him savagely and that's according to st. in June there's a little town little suburb suburban town called Northwoods there was a Northwoods police officer that was accused of using unreasonable force um, he struck a woman repeatedly at a driver's license office in Florissant. this is what's really going like I said There's a million little Fergusons here. Ferguson was not an anomaly. It it was the rule. Okay. Let's go on. Um, The officers have claimed, keep claiming that the suspect uh, continued to resist arrest. And that was the reason why the dog was released but the video contradicts the officer's claims, okay? The video shows the man standing with his hands on the police car. So he's he's got his hands on the car. He's kind of bent down when the dog is released. He is not resisting. And then he falls down, and then he's down on the ground. The officers are kneeling, and then the dog is still biting his head, biting his leg, excuse me. When the dog's pulled off, the man tries to stand up, the dog lunges at him again and keeps biting him again, the man falls to the ground again, and at that point it looks like he's handcuffed. Okay. So this piece in St. Um, they did quote a couple of local activists who I actually know personally, uh, Zaki Baruti as well as my friend Reverend Daryl Gray. Um, because there were protesters outside the Woodson Terrace Police Department this past Friday. Uh, Zaki Baruti was quoted as saying, quote, we were outraged by the vile and despicable behavior of the Woodson Terrace police officers, and he did compare the use of dogs against civil rights protesters in the South in 1960s. And Reverend Gray called the actions of the police officers, quote, reprehensible and inexcusable, end quote. This was an Associated Press report again, and it was written by Katie Hull, but Robert Patrick of the Post-Dispatch also contributed to the report. So let's look at why do cops think they can do this. Because way back in 1989, the Supreme Court, headed by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, a Richard Nixon appointee, said they could. That's why. It is a case named Graham v. Connor. Okay, So when an FBI, even though the FBI investigation is welcome, this cannot be the end of this. For too long, we've seen investigations with and no reforms happening, no meaningful reforms. So let's talk about how the cops get away with this brutal lawless behavior, and it comes directly from the Supreme Court. So in an article written by Ellie Mistel, uh, in the nation and this was written um, just this past April April 8 2021 in the nation the headline is how the Supreme Court gave cops a license to kill Derek Chauvin's defense team is hoping that the 1989 Graham v. Connor ruling will be his ticket to acquittal and we know Chauvin was convicted but this is what happened it wasn't just uh, lawyer tricks It's the law, and that's the shameful thing. So the lawyers in the Chauvin case, as well as a lot of other police brutality cases, just argue that, like in the Chauvin case, he argued cops have the right to kill people if they think they need to, and that's from this Nation piece quote. And that comes from a ruling in this 1989 Supreme Court case known as Graham v. Connors. What we find is that the Supreme Court has made multiple asinine judgments over the decades, but this ruling came from the Rehnquist Court. And Chief Justice Rehnquist, he was a Nixon appointee, and Rehnquist was also an avid racist. In fact, he tried to make it his life's work codify irre- irreparably the suppression of voting rights. Um, he, he really wanted to make sure the voting rights for minorities never happened. And his protege, John Roberts, who took his place, has done the same thing. Roberts just does it with a softer voice. That's why we got the Shelby decision, which literally destroyed the enforcement mechanisms for the Voting Rights Act, period. Okay? This didn't happen in a vacuum. This Supreme Court uh, back in 1989 did it. Okay? So, Let's move on. The law under the Graham ruling allows any cop, any individual police officer, no matter what their frailties, their fears, their racist opinions, their misconceptions, their cowardice, even their own hysteria, to, quote, define the scope of acceptable cop behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay. The writer of this nation report said, Using again the Chauvin case, quote: A "Chauvin could imagine being hit. You must acquit." I know that sounds kind of, kind of snarky, but here's what happened: the Graham v. Connor ruling changed what is known as the use of force guidelines. Okay? So, use of force guidelines were how departments, how police officers, how they determine what level of force was appropriate to use. So that and have an officer still remain within the scopes of the law, whatever that is. So they go back to the background regarding policing, and this author has to say you have to really understand the only real constitutional protection from police violence is the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable search and seizure. That's it. The truth is the Constitution really doesn't protect us from the police. It should, but it doesn't. And the Fourth Amendment followed was considered a reasonable white man standard. Okay? So in practice, this allows for a lot of abuse. Victims of police brutality in the past had to show that officers acted unreasonably and with malicious intent. So back before the the Graham v. Connor decision if you went to court and saying that this police officer brutalized you and used way too much force, you would have to literally prove that the officer acted, one, unreasonably, and, two, that the police officer in question had malicious intent. And, you know, that's pretty hard to do. How do you prove that a violent... I'm going to quote this. How do you prove, quote that a violently homicidal police officer intended to kill them, end quote. And this is before camera phones, all right? So the Graham case took that little loophole of police intent and blew it up. Blew up that loophole so much you could drive a Mack truck through it. Instead of limiting police use of force to what a reasonable person might expect, the court said that force could only be judged against what a reasonable officer on the scene would do. Let me say that again. The Graham case, let me back up. Before the Graham case, if you had a complaint against a police officer that had brutalized you, you not only had to prove that the officer acted unreasonably, the old standard was, Did the police officer do what a reasonable person would do, not a reasonable officer? And then you'd have to prove the cop had malicious intent. Very difficult. The Graham case took that loophole and blew it way up so that now you limit police use of force to what a reasonable police officer on the scene would do. So in the Graham case originally, The Supreme Court found that a reasonable police officer could, quote, slam disarmed Graham's head into his car and break his foot because Graham was resisting arrest. Sound familiar? Never mind that he was a diabetic going into shock who was being detained on the suspicion that he stole some orange juice, which he didn't do. This is why cops always yell, stop resisting people, even unconscious people, to cover their ass. They're setting you up. So whenever a cop says, stop resisting, you have to yell back, I'm not resisting. Don't let them get away with that. The Graham decision was authored by Chief Justice Rehnquist, but the decision was unanimous. The liberals in the court thought that the reasonable officer standard um, was better than trying to prove malicious intent but that wasn't the case. Graham v. O'Connor is the reason that every officer accused of murder says, quote, I feared for my life. It's the reason most officers never face charges. It's the reason a police officer saying, I thought he had a gun, quote, nullifies the objective truth that a suspect was unarmed. Since the Graham decision, Whether police had malicious intent or not, is it doesn't matter. Quote, they can be malicious so long as they can argue that a reasonable police officer would be just as malicious under the circumstances, end quote. And this is why no reform attempts will work until we outlaw this Supreme Court decision which grants a wholesale license to kill. And this is all before we get to the whole racism issue. This is why, if you watch the Derek Chauvin trial, you saw what this author called a string of racist breadcrumbs that the defense used, especially about George Floyd's apparent strength. This goes back to one of the oldest uh, racist tropes out there, that somehow black people, especially black men, have superhuman strength. And even if they're knocked out cold, totally unconscious, not breathing, somehow they can come back with zombie force, except it's all a lie. Black people are people just like anyone else. You have to put up with a lot more shit, excuse my language, but this is one of those racist tropes, and you think, okay, why did Derek Chauvin's lawyer use it? Okay, it wasn't just to be racist. Chauvin's lawyer's did that because of the Graham decision. They argued, quote, even though George Floyd was unconscious, quote, he needed to keep choking him lest Floyd regain consciousness and access his hidden reservoir of big black power. End quote. So the show Derek Chauvin's lawyers had to argue this because it was consistent with the Graham v. Connor ruling what would a reasonable police officer do? So essentially the Supreme Court in 1989 abdicated their responsibility and told every police officer and every police department in the USA, you determine whether it was reasonable force or not and we'll just rubber stamp it, you'll be fine. You have a blank check to commit murder on a wholesale level and as long as you say it was what a reasonable police officer would do, we're good. That's what happened. So all the racism that you saw being offered by Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, it wasn't meant to confuse the issue. It wasn't a sideshow. Quote: It goes to the heart of their Graham v. Connor defense. If they can convince even a, if they could convince even a single juror that large black people can beat up four cops while almost dead, then they can convince them that a reasonable cop would keep his knee on a man's neck for nearly 10 minutes, end quote. That's why you heard Chauvin's lawyer keep asking officers instead of asking witnesses, other police officers that were witnesses, um, to, for facts. He kept saying, what would a reasonable officer do? Have you ever heard of? Is it possible? This is why. Okay. You know. Uh, quote, is it possible that Floyd could have entered an excited delirium state and then posed a threat to the officers? That was one of the questions. Have you ever heard of a person waking up for being choked unconscious and then hurting somebody? End quote. So this is why these racist tropes fed into that Graham defense, what a reasonable police officer would do. That's it. And that is considered a valid legal argument under our current laws throughout the U.S. Period. It shouldn't be valid, but it is. As I said before, the Graham v. Connor decision was the Supreme Court abdicating their responsibility and telling every police officer and every police department in the United States you decide. You be the arbiters of what constitutes excessive force among your own ranks. And, and we'll give you a blank check, and, and, and you just tell us what you need, and we'll sign off on it. That's it. That, that's basically not only letting the fox guard the henhouse, but giving the fox the keys to the henhouse and saying, we trust you. That's stupid. So the supreme court has essentially given cops a license to kill and the only limit is on on the license to kill and on subsequent police violence and brutality is would this be what another reasonable cop would do in the same situation that's it and i know it's hard to believe but it's the truth so We know that we need new national use of force guidelines and restrictions. During the election, we had several Democratic presidential candidates, from Julian Castro, Cory Booker, even Kamala Harris. They said they supported new national use of force guidelines and restrictions. But Joe Biden wasn't one of them. Okay, he trusted accountability review boards. will bring people together to figure it out. No, So, to quote the last of this article from The Nation, quote, When you watch the Chauvin trial and listen to defense put on their case, remember that all the victim-blaming, fear-mongering, and racism is not a fancy lawyer trick aimed at subverting justice. It's a policy choice made by the Supreme Court, end quote. And that piece was authored by Ellie Mistel, okay? And it's true. This is why the police get away with it. And the fact is, no amount of police reform is ever going to work until we change these use of force guidelines. That's it. And we don't have to take it all the way to the Supreme Court again. We just need the Congress and the President to do their damn job write a new bill, write a new law that actually lays out when use of force is appropriate. That's it. But they won't do it. They won't do it. And, you know, you will hear a lot of people talk about how we need the police. They serve and protect. No, they don't. That's a fairy tale created by television. The police were originally created to serve and protect the very rich and corporate against people of color, new migrants, unions forming, etc. Okay? From the Guardian, there was a piece written by Malika Jabali, and it deals with police behavior. And the headline is, if you're surprised by how the police are acting, you don't understand U.S. history. Policing in America was never created to protect and serve the masses. It can't be reformed because it was designed for violence, end quote. It's true. And the Guardian uses a picture um, here in St. Louis. It was a George Floyd protest. One black man on his knees, wearing a mask, hands behind his back against a full row Of police in full RoboCop battle gear including warrior shields. Apparently this one black man terrorized them that much. Like I said lots of Ferguson's. So let's talk about this. First of all here in the United States to quote from this article quote, the history of policing is steeped in blood, end quote. And it is. Um, The Texas Rangers, give me an example. They're named after a group of white men of the same name who slaughtered Comanche Indians in 1841. And why? To steal the territory and lands of indigenous peoples. The Rangers are considered the first state police organization. So when you see Texas Ranger on TV, you know what? It doesn't deserve the whitewashing it's received. It doesn't deserve the good reputation at all. Um, the first, some of the first actual police police departments were slave patrols, and slave patrols are considered by many historic researchers as quote a forerunner of modern American law enforcement. Okay. That was in the South. In the Northern Free States, um, police precincts were developing as industrialism was taking hold, and the economic elites were worried that there would be riots from, you know, their abuse of factory workers who were trying to unionize because, oh, I don't know, they didn't think six-year-olds should be working in a factory. They thought that maybe working 20 hours a day wasn't a good idea. Unions formed because the workers were being abused, and the response of economic elites, in other words, the rich, was to form these groups that were strike breakers. They called them police, they gave them some because they gave them some legal cover, but that's what it was. They were strike breakers. Okay This is where our police come from, okay. And modern court rulings, according to this article, quote, modern court rulings have steadily eroded civil liberties to give police more power and permit racially discriminatory policing. Okay, let me go over this again. Quote, modern court rulings have steadily eroded civil liberties to give police more power and permit racially discriminatory policing, convictions, and sentencing. And the Graham v. Connors Supreme Court decision fits right in with that pattern. This is not an anomaly. This is the plan. It always was. And it wasn't just back in the day before the slaves were released. We have modern-day abolitionists. And the abolitionists today are claiming that policing and incarceration, the reforms have to move beyond modest proposals that, basically just make incremental changes, but still maintain this unjust system, okay? And that is based on the cooneylawreview.org The billions of dollars that governments spend on militarized police could be better used to address underlying problems that trigger crime, such as the socioeconomic conditions that make people desperate. In fact, the argument is that we should take resources uh, from the police towards investments in the following: mental health, public education, drug prevention programs, homelessness prevention, community-centered crime prevention, and job development. You know, George Floyd's police murder—okay, he, he was murdered by police—triggered a worldwide response. And yet here in the United States, with the exception of the squad and a few true progressives, we have little to no actual reform. It's still the same incremental garbage. These cops don't need more empathy training. What they need is to know that if they abuse their position of power, there will be legal consequences for them. That's what's needed. And that one of the things that this author is saying is that the work of abolitionists, they should move past calls for criminal justice reform and instead make demands for freedom, okay? Now, Malaika Jabali is a writer, attorney, and activist. Um, And this was from The Guardian. It's about a year old, but I happen to agree with a lot of it. You know, we had a lot of talk earlier this year about defunding the police. I did a few shows on them. And a lot of these terms are borrowed from the fields of sociology, and sometimes it's not good to borrow jargon from certain academic fields because it makes it harder for the public to see what you're really trying to do. When we're talking about defunding police, we're not necessarily talking about eradicating them altogether. We're talking about basically stripping down a lot of the excessive funding that they receive, including... The excessive funding that gets them military-grade weapons. Okay, and we see sti- we still see pushback. So, you know, there was a an argument. Right now, there's there's uh, um, there's talk in Congress between Republicans and Democrats, um, especially in the Senate, to hold police accountable. So we have uh, Senator Tim Scott, who is a black Republican, and Senator Cory Booker, who is a black Democrat, trying to work through this. And today on Face the Nation, uh, we saw Senator Scott steadfastly refuse to consider any reform which cuts funding levels for the police. He was quite adamant. And at one point, he complained about grants being withheld from local departments if the departments didn't follow certain rules. I don't know about any of you, but I know a little something about grants. And so let's get to this. So not only did Senator Scott really not want any police reform, it was evidently obvious, but then he started um, complaining about requirements that Cory Booker had put in a bill for police reform. And the minimum requirements for reform in order to obtain grant monies per Senator Cory Booker's recommendations, included bans on deadly tactics such as chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Now, keep in mind, chokehold killed Eric Garner. No-knock warrant resulted in Breonna Taylor's death. And CBS had reported that it had obtained a document outlining uh, Cory Booker's minimum requirements. That's where I got it from. And CBS said the document also outlined reforms departments would need to make to, quote, remain eligible for certain types of grants. Now, Senator Scott was quoted as saying today, quote, we have about a billion dollars in grant money that goes to police. When you start saying in order to receive those dollars, you must do A, B, and C, and if you don't do a B and C, you literally lose eligibility for the two major pots of money. When you tell Local law enforcement agencies said that you are ineligible for money, that's defunding the police. There's no way to spend that. Except that what Senator Scott was saying is unreasonable and kind of a lie, and he knows it. See, grants of any type, yes, it's free money, but they always have requirements that have to be met in order to obtain the grant monies in the first place and to retain them. There's nothing unusual or unreasonable in that expectation. And if you, if you accept grant money and you know there's certain conditions, and there's always conditions, okay, if you use that money in a way that is counter to the requirements of the grant, then you have to pay it back. That's grants in any field. That's the nature of grants. Yes, grants are free money, but there are requirements attached to them. That's it. It's not a blank check. And Senator Scott knows this, but since he didn't actually have a case to really rebut Cory Booker's uh, suggestion, he did this instead, and he kept going back to the idea, he won't back anything that defunds the police, okay? Um, And to quote him as saying, Senator Scott also wanted to say, I'm only saying that if you read the legislation, it's pretty simple. Um, This is not something that I'm making up and we can debate our facts. We can actually say in several different areas of the bill it reduces funding. Well, yeah, so it reduces funding if you fail to meet the conditions of the grant. Why is that a problem? To me, it sounds like what Senator Scott wants is that we should just hand over the money in the form of a blank check and have no accountability or transparency Mm -hmm. mechanisms. And that's ridiculous. Now, Cory Booker will be on Face the Nation next week to rebut that. So, you know, this is what's happening right now. There is no meaningful police reform. There just isn't. And, you know, essentially, Senator Tim Scott is taking the GOP line, which says that rule of law only applies to unwanted others. While privileged is retained by white supremacists. Again, his issue on grant monies, including conditions which must be met, is based in that sense of privilege. Apparently, police departments should not be expected to provide any true accountability or transparency, according to Senator Scott, period. The argument offered by Senator Scott, it's not only intellectually bereft, it's ethically bankrupt. The stonewalling provided by Senator Scott on Face the Nation merely illustrates the inherent dishonesty endemic to the GOP of Trump. No Democrat should expect any honest representation from the GOP at this time, much less any reciprocity of compromise is offered. That's a fool's errand. And Senator Scott essentially said so today. So, no one should be shocked by what's happening what happened this past week in Woodson Terrace, Missouri. This level of brutality, racism, and overt police criminality was baked right into the system. I know for a fact on a personal level I have a neighbor just around the corner from me here in Overland, Missouri. Nice family. Black church family. The young man, he works and goes to college. He was coming home from work. He was driving his father's car. He pulled into their driveway. An Overland cop followed him. And at that point, uh, when the kid, the kid just froze in his own driveway, and the cop came and accused him of not living there, the young man showed his ID, all the while, this overling cop had a gun to this young man's head. Period. This happened just a year ago. The family is too frightened to report it. Ferguson is everywhere. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruling by the Rehnquist Court in 1989 in the Graham v. Connor case granted police not merely a license to kill but a wholesale one all police have to do is utter the magic words i feared for my life and or stop resisting no actual proof of police accusations is required and that's due to the graham ruling by now it is patently clear excuse me having a few technical issues here By now, it is patently clear that no meaningful justice reform reform can occur until the Graham ruling is set aside. And Congress could do that right now if they only had the backbone. Okay, now we're moving on. That was the justice report, and I'm sorry, I'm having a few technical issues right now. Hmm. That's the... um, pausing sorry about that folks our political heroes zeros and villains segment this week we have a political zero secretary mayorkas and president biden himself under the biden administration haitian migrants at our south southern border are being turned away and denied their legal right to request formal asylum make no mistake the right to request asylum is the law of the land it's also international law. Yet the Biden administration has decided to continue using something called Title 42 as the excuse to block asylum requests coming from people of color. Keep in mind, there are approximately some 60,000 illegal white Canadians here in the U.S., yet no one in the administration is using Title 42 to remove them. But I have a solution. Instead of using Title 42 as an excuse to justify deportation, under claims of medical contagion dangers during the pandemic. Why not take the excess COVID vaccine that white Americans have refused and fully inoculate the Haitians? During this time, we could feed and medically treat the Haitians, in addition to this being a quarantine period, for safety. We could provide temporary housing using climate-controlled big tents, often used um, by either mobile army surgical hospitals or the kind of climate-controlled tents used for big weddings. While they're waiting for the inoculations to fully take, attorneys from the federal government could begin paperwork for asylum requests. In fact, actual hearings could take place virtually. So why aren't we doing this? Because it would make obvious that the excuse Title 14 used, it would make obvious that the excuse of the Title 42 provides used by both the Trump and Biden administration's was simply another instance of systemic racism. What good is elevating a handful of elite attorneys like Vice President Kamala Harris if our wholesale treatment of racial minorities remains so vile? And where is the Vice President on this? Why isn't she speaking out? Because it's politically disadvantageous? The Haitians are coming here because of actions by the U.S. government damage their land. We owe them better than this. Anyway, that's the Justice Report tonight. And at this point in time, I will say good night and God bless and tune in next week.